In this episode, we explore one of the three main sub-themes of the exhibition Evaporating Suns, which is social arrangements and structures. Our guest today is Bahraini multimedia artist and photographer Mashail El Sai. Mashail's practice expresses research-driven interpretation of Bahraini mythologies via text, image, and glass. Incorporating themes of science fiction and eco-feminism, her most recent work explores collective consciousness embedded in the myth of the Adari Spring. Mashail's commissioned work for Evaporating Suns, Barren Springs, will be presented in the exhibition. I am joined by my co-host and colleague, Danielle Tamimi, who is a Sharjah-based Iraqi-Palestinian curator and artist, as well as the founder of Ruman Collective. Khosh Bosh for Evaporating Suns, Contemporary Myths from the Arabian Gulf, an exhibition presented by the KBHG Foundation and curated by Jawaza Curatorial Lab. The exhibition opens on May 12, 2023 in Basel, Switzerland. Hi. How's your day going? It's going well. You just got off a flight, but you you have so much made energy. It. You look so put together. You don't look like you just came off a flight um, from New York as well. It's not a short flight. I mean, I did fly in yesterday, so I did have one night's rest. Um, just for people listening, it was really funny because I actually walked into the recording studio with half of the artwork that is going to be what we're going to be talking about today um which is kind of funny <laughs> yeah behind Michelle are two rolls I think those are the prints right yeah those are the prints yep Michelle goes everywhere with her artwork um let me just say that <laughs> the security at the airport were kind of confused when I had this like I don't know how large this is right now, but it's rolled up and it's literally large. Yeah, it's the size of a child. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm happy to be back in the UAE and I'm like really excited to be having this conversation. Um, me and Danya have had separate really brilliant conversations over Zoom over the past, oh my God, like a year, it feels. I think this is the first time I see you in person, actually. In person? Yeah. That's crazy. Like, wow. That's crazy. Um, and like for context, Anita, like literally two weeks ago, I like messaged Danya. I'm like, I'm freaking out. I need a curator's <laughs> opinion. And the girl literally got on Zoom immediately and was like, let's talk about it. So I'm so happy to like share this that space right like now. Danya. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have it here. <laughs> now we have it. <laughs> so, okay, let's start there. So, um, Michelle, you, you're creating a commissioned work. Yes. Uh, for Evaporating Suns, and you've been working on it for almost more than two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were you and Danya talking about? Um, so I guess the story goes back even further than that. Um, the last time we spoke, I kind of shared the story of my recent research um, about Adari and the mythologies of Adari. Um 
what happened and which was kind of kismet was I was starting to kind of approach the story in a very different way. Um, and that's kind of when I was approached by Derwaza and we started having these conversations about like the evolution of the work. Um, so at the time I was kind of thinking about the mythology of Adari, which I'll share again shortly. Um, as a collection of photographs, like um, kind of carrying on the story and surplanting it into new environmental situations. Um, I kind of took a step back from that in my research and in my thinking, and I was really curious about the heroine of the story um, and, you know, her transformation from body to land body and what that meant and the etymology of that and the etymology of the site. And so I had all of these like very loaded questions that had to do with a lot of collapsing ideologies um, that I really was like keen to unravel. And at that point is when we started having our initial conversations with there was a, about, um, you know, my initial tests um, in glass as a material um, expanding from like the photographic medium into multimedia storytelling so that's kind of at a very kind of general state how we came to this point um and for our listeners who have yet to see the show yeah can you describe the work sure so um before i describe the work i think i'll, I'll talk about the reason the work exists which is um I came across um, or kind of in like a remembrance um, of a site, Adari, which is a natural spring in Bahrain. And I was very curious about all the mythologies that were told about the sites. And there are very, very many different versions. The one that I had kind of heard in whispers was um, a story of a young woman in a palm tree grove that was approached by a man implying some sort of like sexual violence or um, abuse and she begins to weep um, once she starts to weep um, her body turns into the eternal spring now the eternal spring is kind of a trope that is very common in Bahrain because you know we have this kind of history of like the Gilgamesh myth and the fountain of youth so that's not necessarily a coincidence um, and in another variation you know I had a show in Bahrain at Ruwaq in January and someone came up to me and was like I have a version of the myth I want you to hear. And I was like, I'd love to hear it. And he was like, yeah, like it's it's similar. Like there's a, a woman, but she wanted to get married to a man that her family disapproved of. And so she began, began to weep in this palm tree grove. And that's when this when she turned into a spring. So it's interesting to think about all the different kind of branching narratives and how... Um, they coalesce and what are the common denominators there so that's kind of the the mythology that like lured me in um and i was very fascinated with transformation um and material transformation um and so the the work itself that's being part of the exhibition is is kind of like an homage to that 
um, protagonist and her transformation um, in the form of photography. And I'm thinking of that as like a photographic portal. And then also um, these glass sculptures, which we can talk about a little later, that have kind of distilled this like quiet violence that I'm very much inspired by in this work. That's super, super interesting. I'm very intrigued about the transformation that you talk about, not just physically, whether whether it's in the story, but also the narrative that you um, claim and reclaim within this work. And I wanted to ask you, how did that shift happen, whether it's through this project, through these two years, or, um, you know, from before these two years and after these two years, mm. where did the story shift for you? Mm. How is your perception of it changing? That's a great question. I think that um, unlike kind of work that I had been collecting previously or making previously, this story felt very much like something to be approached quietly and sensitively. And it really came in a very um, slow manner. Like, for example, I just was really fascinated in the material of glass and then it kind of made so much sense to me that that would be related in parallel to this story so a lot of these things kind of happened in parallel in a way that was like coincidentally spontaneous but that made sense for like a larger narrative and I think that for a lot of artists um, it, it becomes the case where you know, you're working in two modalities, one is research and one is making, and then you take a step back and then you realize that everything kind of has a common thread. And that's the case for me in that, you know, I was doing all this research and all this reading and, you know, also being more um, inclined towards like spiritual ritualistic practices. And it, that coincided with these new explorations. So taking a step back I'm like of course that's what I ended up with but like the way in which it happened like I wasn't aware until like, it finally got to where I am I think it's interesting that you said that the two myths or the different myths coalesce into one because to me it seems like they contradict each other mm -hmm. they're so different so why has one myth taken precedence or been more widely shared over the other one you know, that's another great question because it's also hard to gauge what is most widely shared. Um, and that's because of access and what I'm privy to in terms of knowledge about the site. Um, I mean, I was very drawn to my initial story because I'm very concerned about, you know, this eco-feminist concerns about the way we talk about land and the way we talk about the body and how the degradation of land is is very much related to the exploitation of um of female bodies so that was very interesting for me in a sense of like that's kind of where i wanted to to share work about and what i wanted to talk about um now if i was more concerned with other themes then it would be interesting to kind of explore um the other variations of the story um and i think that you know, what's so beautiful about mythologies and oral histories is that in each re-utterance, there are new ideologies that are like soaked in to the story. And so even as I tell it, 
you know, it would be transferred to the next person that hears it in a very different manner. Um, and that's also just kind of like a sign of where we're at presently and what our concerns are about the world at present. Mm. Mm. Reminds me of uh, like the way memory works. Because yes. you don't remember a memory, you remember the last time you remembered it. Yeah. Each time you remember it, it changes a little bit. Um, so the thing about memory is that it can be entirely false. And I'm also very aware that there are no ways to validate the story. And there's no way to invalidate the story. And that's kind of the beauty of it is like, I'm kind of encouraging a space to collapse all of your thinking onto this myth. You can believe it, you cannot believe it, but it's really about how you interact with these ideologies and these stories that like is really the fertile ground that I'm trying to work with. That's very interesting because I feel like there is already so much power in allowing and validating multiple stories of one thing to exist in a parallel manner. Um, but if we look at, for example, the other myths around mm -hmm. or the way that they were sourced or the way that they were retold, we were sort of asked to take it as it is. We were sort of asked to take it as the one true. Um, and it comes with so much, like it, it becomes a tool, of course, um, a tool to protect, a tool to control and so on. Um, so how do you feel like allowing a story to exist in multiple mul multitudes? How do, you, how do you see that affecting the society around it? Mm. You know, I think that... Um, monolithic histories are definitely being challenged at a greater scale and um, I encourage that. I mean, I think that taking information as is is no longer the case and that's because we are we have access to so much information more than ever before and that's kind of like the age of the information world that we're in. But um, The nuance is important because um, as we get more secular in our views and in our politics, I think it's important also to um, step out of kind of the given narrative and to challenge the given narrative by, you know, oral histories are typically kind of sources of information that has been marginalized in the corners of society because you know they're discounted as infantile or um as you know um fantasy mm. but there's a lot of kind of importance that is kind of injected into that fantasy and you know especially with the tropes um the common denominator characters that we keep using and reusing Um, why is it that there is a palm tree grove? Why is it that there is water? Why is it that it's a young maiden? Like these are the questions that we need to start asking um, to get behind like what the thinking was. Um, I absolutely agree about your perception of it and I think it's healthy to always have it as a, a breathing space. Um, and when you said to point out the, um, the solid factors within these um liquefied stories that's that's super interesting like you blew my mind uh <laughs> right there um i think this is a good chance for us to start talking about the work physically yeah um so you know you're talking about a photographic portal you're talking about a lot of glass there's a lot of tension but also 
softness within that. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would you like to describe to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll kind of start by saying I kind of very <laughs> casually was like, I want to learn everything about glass. <laughs> and when I put my mind to something, it's kind of like you can't stop me. So um, I remember taking a workshop um, with um, this wonderful, wonderful experience, glass blower Alex. Um, and you know, I spent the whole day kind of learning the basics and I was like, this is insane. I'm, and mind you, I'm like a 5'2 woman <laughs> operating like glass, like, like, you know, tools. And I felt so powerful also just like in the hot shop. So that's kind of one thing that got me addicted. The second is that we're working with insane temperatures and material that is at its base sand which I thought was very poetic to kind of like my personal narrative right um so I was kind of very much at a meta stage intrigued by the whole a to z of the process and I think why I think the work really resonated in glass or resonates in glass is because the process of making these works which is um kind of infusing frankincense with glass at the stage of kind of the second gather um is very violent and it's very kind of dramatic right so um sorry what's the second gather yeah so i'm basically the process is i kind of like gather glass first and then i would with the stickiness kind of of that initial glass gathering um, we kind of lay out frankincense and roll the frankincense into the glass and then go over it again to kind of encapsulate it. So really sandwiching the, the frankincense in this glass um, blob. Um, and what happens is the, the entire hot shop starts smelling like insanely of bhur, right? Um, and it's just, it's smoky and it's beautiful and it's dramatic and there's ash and there's... There's just a lot of like sensory things happening all at once. And then, you know, you see the final glass product and it's this quiet, fragile, delicate, looks heavy, looks like water, is see-through. Like it has all of these different tensions happening that is so at odds with what allowed it to happen. And that's kind of how I was thinking about the story of the mythology of the Adari Maiden is that, you know, there are all these violences that are happening that ended up in the creation of this spring. And it it drew like a very like great parallel for me. So I I um I was really excited about using glass to kind of tell that story, which wasn't my usual medium, right? Like I'm I come from kind of a photographic practice um so i think the relationship between the story and the place is also reflected in the presentation of your work Mm -hmm. there's also an audio component to this work and you like when you see the works from from a distance you don't assume the violence or you don't expect the violence and then when you get closer to it you start to hear the story and it literally becomes like a multiple and and multi, mul- like multiple instances. Like it, it becomes 
a multi sensory yeah multi-sensory experience. experience yeah it kind of traps you like you get closer and closer and think this is so beautiful yeah we're the frankenstein <laughs> you're the frank i love that um that's such a great tool i think that i've been thinking about is like how because i think that i default and this is something that i'm trying to explore within my own practice is that even in my photography works there was always an element of like the ethereal that i almost didn't necessarily intend on producing um but you know i was interested in light and it kind of rendered it itself to um the ethereal kind of spirit um with this work mythologies feel like one of those tantalizing very seductive um stories that you know are laden with a lot of um controversy or a lot of like deep um concerns but that's not what they lead with they lead with like a once upon a time mm -hmm. and that was kind of the format of the install work that I wanted to kind of encapture is that you know you're from a distance you see these glimmering glass pieces that are in a constellation form kind of like in a garden of tears and then you come closer and you know the audio component is recorded sound of the actual site um, and there is kind of like a white somber noise attached to that um, and the feeling of that is kind of um, what I'm trying to elicit loss and um, this quiet violence from um, yeah and then you know the portal which I'm just I'm using the word portal because it's a 40 by 40 print um, and it's um, you know it's a triple exposure of um, an imagined sites in transformation um which is i guess it's hard to explain without looking at it because it is very much one of those photographs that is um um you don't really know what you're seeing until you sit and and take some time to breathe it in um and it's printed on like a silk polyester brand um so it has that very like seductive um soft delicate feeling -like. yes yes and you know the the dreams here are very much um dark um but that's not what you feel initially mm -hmm. um and i think there's a lot of power with kind of that subtle politic mm -hmm. um because what we're talking about here is you know the degradation of the environment of a water loss of um a social site that is like no longer existent mm -hmm. um so and these things are you know of concern but it's not um the work isn't trying to scream it out loud it's really just trying to have you engage um emotionally with um the mythology that's super super interesting and i'm very glad that you're talking about about the experience of viewing it whether each element separately or as a whole and i can't help but think about um the the way that the myths start you know you hold a story until without realizing one day the story is holding you because you're so engulfed within it mm -hmm. and we see a very similar and parallel experience as we approach your um, multimedia installation within the space mm -hmm. um, you view it until you realize that you're within that quote-unquote garden mm -hmm. and i can't help but think about the way that your literal breath 
is engulfed and captured within these glass sculptures. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear your opinion about it. Like, it's very poetic, but it's also, as you said, like, there is a bit of, like, a literal human touch, a literal, literal I don't know, residues of, of not just your stories or your experiences or your perception, but literally parts of you. Um, that's a beautiful way to put it, Tanya. Um, that's, um, wow. I think that something that you brought up that I think is really important to me is that there's an absence of body in all of these works, mm-hmm. um, which was intentional because I really was thinking about the absence of the characters and the absence of the sights um, while making it. And, you know, when when you are glass blowing, you are like blowing air into some of these pieces. Um, Now, not all of them are glass blown, but that's definitely the case for some of them. And um, I think what's interesting there is that when it comes to mythologies themselves, they really don't exist in a written form. They exist based on someone's retelling. So in the form of someone else's breath. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can be lost just as easily. um, Which is why it's so valuable. And, you know, we can talk about very many other mythologies that have kind of like sat in the back of your consciousness. um, And maybe not intentionally have informed the ways you think about your superstitions. Um, I can think of another story um, that my grandma and I'm sure a lot of other kids grew up with, which is a mahmar, which is like this half donkey, half woman um, that would kind of prey on young children. Um, and that's kind of like a mechanism or like a vehicle to keep children from wandering out late at night. So that's kind of like the the purpose for a story like mm. that but then you ask the questions well why is she a woman and why is she a donkey <laughs> and why is is this some form of jinn and like what does that mean about what we have access to and the fears and the anxieties that we have why again is the story a female protagonist um so that's very interesting to me and i think it's also interesting here to bring up the point of social arrangements and structures which is one of our three Um, sub-themes for this exhibition and thinking about how a lot of the times these myths are intended to inspire fear, to inspire to gain control over someone as well and so many of the myths that we've heard while researching for this exhibition have had um, female antagonists at the center of them and uh, two two of the other artists in the show, Fatma Fardana and Zahur Al-Sayah who also are on the other episode um, they were t- their work uh, follows the myth of Umm al-Khadar al-Leaf, yes. who is also uh, a woman, apparently, who also wants to steal people's kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we tie that back to your artwork, why do you think that this, like, again, you said there are different versions of it, but why do you think this is the one that you heard or other girl, young girls might be hearing? Or who do you think is hearing this story? These stories. And it, what, for what reason? Um... Again, I think it's a question of access. Um, I do think that I can't really ask why this version of the story is the one that resonated with me, but or the one that came to me and you know found its way, and I held on 
really tightly to it. Um, because like I said, I've been working on this kind of story for years now. Um, and I keep coming back to it. And I keep coming back and finding new things about it. Which is what's kind of really beautiful here is that um, there are so many entry points into the story. Um, and so many different narratives to tell. Um, that I, every time I find myself straying, I find myself coming back to the story. Um, because I, I guess, you know, the things that stick with you are things that are important to you. And it is important to me to talk about, you know, um, the environment. It's important to me to talk about, um, you know, kind of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me and that stayed with me. So um, it, it's also really a question of the receiver. And same with the mythologies, right? Like whatever you absorb is something that you also inherently want to be absorbing or kind of are inclined to absorb. So I guess there are two interesting things to look at. One, why does, the myth, why does a myth come to you mm -hmm. and why does it stick? Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to ask Dania, like, what is a myth that has stuck with you? Like, So... Basically, well, this is a funny story, actually, because this myth was told to me not for... It wasn't... It was told as a retold story. It was supposed to be a funny story of mm -hmm. my uncle um, scaring my mom as they were kids. And he used this story to sort of convince her to do whatever he wants to do or whatever. Like, if he wants to play something, but she doesn't want to do it, then he would just warn her with this creature. And my mom would always retell it as a funny story, but I don't know why it stuck to me. I'm like, no, mother doesn't know that it's really real. Maybe she's, maybe she, that's her way of like double convincing. Mm -hmm. um, so I was almost f fearful of the unknown. Like, okay, my mom's telling me it's a funny story and she's telling me that it's not real, but there's something that my mom's not telling me. And that's like, I fixated on whatever I couldn't know, mm. which is very interesting because we hear these stories and yes, there are some details to them, but there are also a lot of untold details. And that's the worst part of it because it leaves it to the imagination and God, kids and their imagination is, is absolutely fearful, mm. like terrifying. And I completely agree with what you said. And I was just thinking like the, the myth that keeps coming back to me is also of an elderly woman who steals kids mm. when I'd go back to um, my grandma's house in Chechnya in the summer like when I was little we'd go back and my grandma you know she has like full garden to tend to she has she's pickling like veggies <laughs> and like making jams all day she doesn't have time to watch what me and my brother are doing so she would tell us about Baba Yaga who lives in the attic I don't think she even told me she lives in the attic she just said like Baba Yaga will get you uh-huh and I'm like who is she nothing you know no answers but in my head, as a child, I was like, okay, this is her house and this is what she does. All I know is she eats children. Um, and yeah, like, why does that myth stay with me? And how does that affect the way we see women? Yeah, like well, also, I think some another one of your sub-themes was uh, social structures, mm -hmm. correct? And so this is a kind of like another form of social control, right? Like the stories we tell ourselves at a very psychological level also guide the way we act um so i can i can definitely see you know your grandma being like you know i'm not gonna tell them to run around um and come home at midnight like what about just you know forcing them mm -hmm. into thinking that you know something is out to get them so they'll start to self-regulate um 
so it really is a lot about like behavior control and I think that there are intentions behind the stories we tell um sometimes they're very um obvious Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're maybe not even obvious to the person who's crafting the story (laughs) that's true and um as you said like it really becomes um these social structures um they really become the reason they're formulating the space whether emotionally or physically and when we look back at them now we we start understanding a bit of the behaviors or the social norms that were around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that it's always interesting to think about social behaviors across time um, and kind of the way, you know, you can dovetail each chapter um, with its perspective. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very curious about how the story with a, will evolve past me and past generations to come or if, how it would even exist. Um, I think that, you know, we're, we're trying to make sense of a very complicated um, state of the world in terms of ideologies. Um, and, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend earlier, you know, it's like about um, making work about climate disaster it's it also feels like that's kind of a default in the sense of you know we are struggling with issues of climate um, and with issues of environmental degradation it's kind of a reality so it's hard to kind of operate outside of that because it becomes the new norm mm-hmm. um, same with thinking about you know psychological distress that's like you know post-pandemic but even after is is kind of become the norm like these are these are realities that we are such a sign of the times that it's hard to make work as an artist a contemporary artist without acknowledging or kind of just making work outside of that um if your concern is the social reality Mm. because i mean you literally can't run away from it because your creation, whatever form it is, whether visual or even just the way that we conversate, it is it is a way of the collection mm-hmm. of all that we have observed and all that we have absorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's beautiful. It's poetic, and you can't you can't run away from it. Yeah, and I think that another thing is that um, I'm really happy to be a part of this exhibition with other artists that are you know. Um, peers and mentors to me Um, people like Zuhur and Fatma and Moza like these are you know people who have definitely informed my practice Um, so having us kind of together in this space um, really is is such a pleasure and also will really be a nuanced conversation Um, I know one of the things that um, Anita you had talked to me previously about wanting to talk about was um the fact that the exhibition is in switzerland Mm -hmm. and what that means um you know i don't think this is like a traveling circus right like that's not at all what we're coming from Mm -hmm. um i think that the work um is nuanced and i think that um from all the different artists and i think that you know we're acknowledging that um although one of the themes is mythology, we're really trying to break down what that means Mm -hmm. and not leading by illusion. This isn't a story of illusion. This is a story of kind of 
talking about the mythologies that we've encountered and how we can think critically about them. Absolutely. And and previously we were discussing Anita and I about how the moment that we come in with our story, with that shift in um, the storytelling, then it instantly just, there is a shift in power. There is a shift in, in the perspective that we hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we can't help it, but hope that that would accumulate and then build up to a shift in perspective in return towards us, not just coming out of us. No, definitely. And I think, I mean, something that I'll be a little vulnerable here, but something that I've been struggling with in my own practice is that I continue to get the kind of critique that I'm not um, stepping too close to my audience, as in I'm kind of like withholding a lot of information and I'm asking the audience to come closer to me rather than to kind of compromise and come closer to them. Um, And I thought about this a lot um, and about why I have a tendency towards that, you know, why my work is extremely coded. um, And I'm not saying that um, I think it's inherently a bad thing because I do think that that's kind of a natural way of communicating um, relative to my experience. But I am very curious about um, this conversation where, you know, I'm asking the viewer to come closer um, and I'm asking them to engage um, softly um, critically and like genuinely with with the questions that I have um, and I don't really have an answer to that um, comment or critique um, it's something that I'm looking at um, examining further in my work I think that's also part of the power of your work mm. like they say if you want someone to really listen to you you should whisper because then they lean in closer and give you their full attention you know and especially when it comes to climate disaster I like how we're not even using the word climate change anymore yeah, climate yeah. disaster um, sometimes when things are too loud they can be overwhelming but to mm. have this soft space to kind of reflect on it mm. I think is really powerful and we're, okay we've talked a lot about what um, about the nature of myth as being retold and having some fantasy element to it but something that we as the Dawaza team have been reflecting a lot on is how there isn't really that much difference between what we know as myth and what we know as fact. I think we have ways of labeling them that help us differentiate, but at their core, they're not that different. Like uh, oral oral history or fairy tales or news, like from a newspaper. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know what the difference is sometimes. And mm-hmm. also they tend to weave into each other, you know, or like transform into each other over time, over space. Um, yeah, just something to put out. Oh, 100%. There. And I think the subjectivity of news is like mm-hmm. very much caused a lot of um, political disaster over the past, I mean, few years. I mean, just even with, if you're talking about world news, like in the Trump administration and mm-hmm. um, how news. that has mm-hmm. kind of like been a secularized um, information environment. It's it, it becomes the question of, you know, we have access to... A lot of information um, and then it boils down to what do you choose to believe um, and yeah. um, I think there's definitely responsibility to um, you know do your own 
research in terms of like what is important to you and I think there is no greater um, resource than actually learning from the land itself um, and from the environment itself um, for example my experience of the sites very much changed upon continued visits there um, and that's kind of the information that you know doesn't necessarily lie in a sense of you have an emotional resonance or an emotional experience. Whereas, um, I mean, it's obviously really important to kind of hear from others, but I do think that um, fi like forging your own path and um, kind of questioning what you're being fed because you are being fed, right? Mm -hmm. Constantly. Um, we're just in an ad economy and, and an attention economy and um, be, being kind of curious. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily like in a negative sense also, you know, there is a curiosity that can be very enlivening. Absolutely. And it becomes, you know, like to put it straightforward, just choose your, your poison. <laughs> mm -hmm. Choose what, you, what you're exposed to. Um, I have a question, maybe on a on a lighter um, no. aspect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, if we were to humanize the land and if we were to factualize the story, if you were to go back in time, what do you think the land would tell you now? And what do you think the the main character, the lady, what would she tell you? Mm, wow. Danya with the questions. <laughs> um, okay, let me think about this. Hmm. I do think that something that we perhaps, or not even perhaps, but we're definitely ignoring is how much our land is weeping. Um, and that's part of the story, right? Is that you know, the woman is weeping and turns into a spring, but really the outcome here is that we've extracted so much um, and we've kind of exploited um, and not really been sensitive to, like, environmental cycles that, you know, have led to a lot of disaster. Um, and I think really what the story is for me like speaking in volumes about is there's an escape towards the spiritual realm that is a form of you know transformation that speaks to th the circumstances that have led there um and if i can equate the violence towards this protagonist as an exploitation of the land um then of course kind of this escapism into you know um um denial perhaps um of the reality is what is to come um you know the present day spring no longer exists um and there's a pool in its place um and I question kind of the intention behind that because that is also meant that the spring can never come back to life. Mm. Um, and so 
I think that in looking back at this story, thinking about um, kind of the way in which mythologies are screaming out um, in whispers <laughs> what their concerns are. It's beautiful. She likes poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that brings us, like, we're talking about the literally um, the barren spring. Mm. And I can't help but think about the um, landscapes within the spaces here, within the Gulf in, in specific. And the myth deriving from literally a, a water source. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, especially... Uh, Especially a freshwater source, which you don't see that much of in the Gulf. Oh, totally. And a freshwater source that we usually know as, like, book definition as the water that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. And then now it's just barren. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, in naming the piece, which is a whole other issue, <laughs> right? Um, naming work is probably the hardest thing um i've ever tried to do but i really wanted to capture this linkage of the etymology of um the female body and the womb and the land and for me barren spring um kind of captures that linkage first because really there isn't a landscape that is barren um so you know even in thinking about um the desert, which is actually such a fertile source of life in terms of like microorganisms and in terms of um, different sorts of um, organisms, that is not, that is commonly thought of as kind of like something that is barren. Um, But then what I wanted to do here with the work and in thinking about landscape is thinking about um, kind of the evolution and linking it to kind of um, a womb and like a source of life, um, which is, um, you know, the power of the divine feminine. (laughs) But um, yeah, I was was very interested in in common cycles um, between woman and land. It's Mother Earth, after all. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> should we should we ask the uh, the we, overgoing question? Why frankincense? Why frankincense? Um, yes. And okay. maybe explain. That's a great story, actually, because I was making the work, and I was on the phone with Mama Foz, who is my grandmother, and um, I think we were talking about. Alchilban, which is frankincense. And I think she's the one who mentioned, she was like, oh, did you know that it comes out of the tree looking like Demur? And I'm like, pause, Mama Foz, what did you just say? <laughs> and um, after that, Demur are like tears. Um, so I was like, this is just, you know, the world hitting me over the head with a hammer. Um, and I, you know, I'm very interested in this idea of like, a multi-sensory material right again having the frankincense in the glass um stops it from having that sense but that knowing the material um and not having access to it is kind of another thing that i wanted to play with um literal chills (laughs) 
So I think that uh, the frankincense story kind of came about um, a little bit in my experimentation process. And it's, it's funny how a lot of my work comes back to my um, grandmother, but that's just the matriarch that she is. Um, and it made sense. It's one of those things, again, where I was like doing these little experiments and then it just came together. And I was like, of course, that was the next missing piece of this exploration. And it's definitely like so interesting because it, we, now we have an overlap of, of these stories or of these um, rituals, you know, frankincense or brood being something that we use here, like culturally and mm -hmm. for like centuries mm. as, as smudging. Mm. Yeah. And, and to ward off spirits. Literally. Right. And now and now you have you're almost using it to capture the story of, of these. Yeah. Um, and this concept of ritual and performance that is like also visible and invisible um, is something that is very interesting to me. Like I I've, haven't explored performance as a part of my work, but I do think a lot of what I do is kind of a silent performance um, in the process of making these things. And, and we can't run away from performing itself when we're around your your literal installation mm. the way that we're we're going to be walking around um these little gardens and and you know listening while while looking while observing while you know stepping mm. closely and then stepping further away it, it becomes a whole ritual or like a dance itself you know mm. yeah and also how a lot of your work is about destruction and change and how uh, the tears of Azari even they disappeared after some time, but this glass is forever, you know, mm, like yeah. you froze it in time. And, um, you know, what was interesting is uh, recently um, we had like a casual group critique with a bunch of, um, you know, our cohort that is no longer in Sif, but, you know, still very much resource to each other. And I think it was Fatma who said about some of my recent photographs, she was like, you know, there's always this thread of quiet mm -hmm. in your work. And um, I love seeing my work through, you know, my peers and other people's eyes because it, it points out kind of these patterns um, of the way in which we communicate. And everyone has their own way of communicating. Um, and it's interesting to me that quietness is what resonated. That's, I think I think uh, <laughs> yeah that's that's absolutely like we're we're literally ending on a high and I'm so excited for hopefully people to see your work in person if not then to all the um documentations um very poetic very powerful as usual Mashad thank you and like super big shout out to the Derwaza team for being <laughs> so awesome um, in my every concern. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you, Danya and Mashail. Thank you, Anita. Bye. <laughs>